Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 3. We were told last week in Acts 2.43 that here at the start of the church, all came upon every soul and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. We get an example of one of those signs and wonders this week in the healing of this lame man who was camped out at the gate of the temple. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at the circumstances that led up to this miraculous encounter. We're going to look at the miraculous encounter itself, the actual event, the the healing, and then the result of this miraculous encounter. So the circumstances that led up to this healing, the healing itself, and then the result. But before we do, let's ask for God's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, bless to our souls the truth that is in your word. May it take deep root. Would we gain profit from what we see in the reading and hear in the preaching. And may we receive it as treasure beyond all treasure, as a fountain which can replenish dry hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. The ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So some time has passed since Pentecost. We aren't sure exactly how long, but it couldn't have been too long because the storm of persecution had not yet broken upon the church. It won't be long before Peter and John find themselves behind bars for the sake of the gospel. It won't be long before Stephen is martyred for the sake of the gospel. But that storm 
has not yet broken. Peter and John, we are told, were on their way to the temple to pray. This is what Christians were still doing at the time. A hard break between Judaism and Christianity had not yet happened. All of these Christians were Jews. And they continued to do what they would normally do on a daily basis. They would go to the temple and pray three times a day. I have a very hard time imagining that these early Christians were doing anything more than praying. By that, I mean, I have a hard time imagining that they were offering sacrifices in the temple. They knew that Christ offered himself once for all as a sacrifice for sin, so obviously there's no further need of any sacrifice. But they would gather to pray. And we're told that at the ninth hour, which is three o'clock in the afternoon, they went up. Then we're introduced to another character, and we don't know his name. We aren't told his name. All we know is that he is a beggar who is lame. He is crippled. He's unable to walk. And he's had this disability his entire life. He's been lame from birth. And he is carried every day by friends or family. We aren't sure who, but he has someone who will carry him to the temple. He isn't allowed to go in because of the Levitical laws preventing those with disabilities from going in. And so he was laid at the gate where he could beg. And he probably became a fixture there. Every day sitting at this gate, which was called beautiful, begging for those who would walk in and out of the temple. Maybe you've lived in a larger city or where at some point in your daily commute or daily routine, you always saw the same beggar over and over again, whether on a sidewalk bench or in, in a median at a red light. But you saw this same person. You were never surprised to see them. They were there every day. That's how it was with this man. He'd been crippled since birth. He had become a part of the people's routine. Every day they would see him as they walked in and out of the temple. They would hear him calling out, asking for money. He'd obviously received enough money to keep himself alive, to buy his food, but I would guess that for most people, they had become numb to his voice after hearing it day after day after day. Sitting there on his pallet outside of the gate, I imagine he just became a part of the landscape, unnoticed by most people. But that was about to change. Before we move on to this miraculous encounter, we need to understand the severity of this man's situation. It's something that's hard for us today to grasp because, for the most part, we are a society that cares for and protects the disabled. I know there are exceptions and there are instances of abuse and there are areas that need to be shored up and fixed, certainly. But for the most part, special effort is made to care for and accommodate individuals with special needs in our society. And I would say with certainty that that care and concern does not stem from paganism or materialism or secularism, but comes from a Christian 
worldview. Everywhere Christianity takes root, there is a care for the needy and a respect for the dignity of human life. But we need to understand that the first century was very different than 2021. At best, being born disabled meant that you would live a life of total poverty. At worst, being born disabled was a death sentence. Infants born with disabilities were seen as lives not worthy of life. Lives that contributed nothing to society, nothing to the family. They were only a drain of resources and a perpetual stress. And in the pagan world, many of those infants were killed at birth. They were left exposed. They were abandoned to the elements. And those little lives would end only hours after coming into the world. Jewish society was not so ruthless. Following Old Testament law, they were forbidden to kill disabled infants. The fact that this man was born a Jew is the reason he's alive to beg in the first place. But life was still hard. And most of the time, in order to survive and purchase food, the only option these people were left with was to do what this man is doing. Camp out in a public place and beg for spare change and food. There's also something else in the background here that this man had to deal with on a daily basis, and it is heartbreaking. And the, it's the fact that disabled, this disabled man was viewed as spiritually and morally inferior. People would look at him and think, oh, he must have done something awful for God to make him this way. What did he do to deserve this that God has done to him? Or what did his parents do? His parents must have been big sinners. They must have done something. Who knows? Adultery, theft, lying. We have no idea. But those parents, they did something, and this is how God is punishing them through giving them this disabled child. That's what a lot of people thought. By the way, it's still something people believe today. I know a woman personally in the Jackson metro area who lost a child at birth, a little girl named Hope. Something went wrong at the very end of the pregnancy and Hope was stillborn. And there in the hospital, the mother-in-law told this mom, quote, if only you'd had more faith, hope would still be alive. It's a monstrous thing to say. But people still believe this. We see the disciples believe it in John 9. I don't know if you remember that story. Jesus and his disciples come across a man who's been blind from birth, and they ask Jesus, Hey, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's the same thing. Is this blindness divine punishment because of something this man did or something his parents did? And how does Jesus respond? He rebukes them and says, Neither. 
This man was born blind so that the glorious power of God might be displayed in him. Things are not so black and white as we see. We live in a sinful and fallen world. but It's not as simple as this man sinned and so this is God's punishment. Rather, as we'll see, the glorious power of God is going to be displayed in this man. But that's what this man was living under. Not only is he unable to walk and unable to work and left begging for change so that he can buy food, but he's also viewed as morally inferior, as a sinner who has done something to earn this fate. We're the child of bad parents. When we read this passage, our heart needs to go out to this man. I know as I'm just casually reading through Acts, I read over this man and instantly go straight to John and Peter's words and the miracle. But we need to understand who this man was and exactly what it was he was saved from. He was carried and left beside the beautiful gate so that hopefully those worshipers going in and out of the temple would be moved and give him some spare change. That's the setup. Then we have the encounter itself. Peter and John are approaching the temple to pray at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and here is this man sitting on his pallet. And he sees them, and he begins to cry out his routine words, something like alms, alms, alms for the poor, whatever it might be. And we see something happen. Peter and John... Look at this man. They look at him. What do we do? We, we usually ignore beggars. We act like we don't see them. We don't hear them. If we're sitting in the driver's seat at a red light and there's someone in a median and they're walking along, we look straight ahead and just pray for the light to turn green. Or at least I do. We see someone begging at the entrance of a grocery store and we walk in the other entrance. So we don't have to walk past them. We act like we don't see them or hear them. But what do Peter and John do? They directed their gaze at him. They looked right at him. And Peter says to this man, look at us. This could have been the first person all day to speak to this man. And Peter says, Look at us. And when he does, he's expecting to receive something. We're we're told that, and it makes sense. He's expecting for Peter or John to pull some cash out of their pocket or pull out their wallet. His expectations were limited to receiving some money, just a few bucks. That's all he wanted. And because we know what happens, we know that this man's expectations were way too low. This man was expecting to receive a few bucks, but what he received was the ability to walk. There's an application for us here. And it's that much like this man, our expectations for God are far too low. Our expectations for what our God can do 
and what our God will give us and what our God wants to give us. They are too low. They're on the floor. We see this in our prayers. Maybe we don't ask God for big things because we don't think he will or can give them to us. This man had no idea what God had in store for him. All he was thinking about was a few bucks to buy his next meal. How do we do the same thing? We ask God for alms instead of asking him for what we need the most. C.S. Lewis has this incredible quote. You've probably heard it before. Pastors love to quote it, quote it all the time. Lewis says this, quote, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. End quote. That's a picture of all of us making mud pies in the slum because we can't imagine a beach vacation. How do we expect too little of God? All of us do. I do. You do. We will ask God to change our circumstances. We do this all the time. But do we ever ask God to change us? This man was asking for a change of circumstance, but he's about to get a change to himself. He looks at Peter. He's expecting to get some change. And Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he, Peter, took the man by the hand, by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. It's amazing. This man who has been sitting and begging and feeling shame over his disability his entire life, now in a moment everything has changed. He hasn't been given silver or gold. He has been healed. In an instant, these previously unused feet and legs are made strong. And he's given the power to walk. And walk he does. We see in verse 8, he enters the temple with him walking and leaping and praising God. Let's look at Peter's words. He says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus. Now, what does name mean here? Why does Jesus say in the name of Jesus? Well, name refers to power. Peter is saying that by the power of Jesus, rise up and walk. He's saying, I'm not the one healing you. You aren't standing by the power of Peter. God has done this. I'm only a servant. You have been healed by the power of Jesus and Jesus of Nazareth, to be more precise. 
The same Jesus of Nazareth who was despised and crucified by a number of people here in Jerusalem. It is by his name and his power that you are healed. And then Peter, being the impetuous person he is, he says this and then reaches down and grabs the man's hand and pulls him up to his feet. There's so many applications here. One of them is, what is the Christian's responsibility when it comes to beggars and the needy? There's a whole lot that could be said here, but I'm going to pick one lane and run in it. Scripture makes it clear that we are to care for the poor and the needy. Old Testament farmers would leave a portion of crops in their field to be gathered by the poor. Jesus always gives attention to the beggars who cried out to him. James writes that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we are to care for the needy. The question is, what's the best way? Or what's the most helpful way for us to care for them? I need to give credit where credit is due. This past week, I sat down at a Bucks with Bobby Caps over a Eddie Burger and said, Bobby, give me like a biblical theology of giving and caring for beggars and the needy. And that was, I mean, just all just an explosion of, uh, of words came out of his mouth. So I need to give him credit here. And we'll start with this. I want all of you to think of someone you know who is hurting. All of you, just think of one person in your mind. Someone who is hurting and in need. Maybe this person is hurting because of illness. Maybe they're hurting because of disability. Maybe they got laid off. Maybe they've been recently divorced and they're hurting emotionally. Maybe it's someone who is experiencing financial trouble. Think of someone. I think it would be impossible for all of us to not have someone in our head right now. God has providentially placed you near that person. And he's done that for a reason. He's done that on purpose. Bobby said something to the effect of proximity is accountability. That God has brought this person near your life so that you can serve them for their good and his glory. The question is, how do we do that? I think there's a lot of wisdom in Peter's words. Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give you. There are two problems going on here. There is a presenting problem and there is an underlying problem. The presenting problem is what you see. It's what you hear. It's the first thing that's said to you. This man needed money. And so he asks for it. That's the presenting problem. But then there's the underlying problem. And what's the underlying problem for this man? He can't walk. And because... He can't walk, he can't work, and because he can't work, he can't eat. And Peter bypasses the presenting problem and goes straight to the underlying problem. Peter wants to truly help this man. 
He doesn't give him silver and gold because really it's not going to make much of a difference. He'll have food today and maybe tomorrow, but the next day or even the week after, he's going to be begging again. So Peter goes at the underlying problem. I want to give you an example of this. Bobby is, of course, the director at Crosswind Ministries. It's a parachurch ministry in town, and he's always getting his his hands dirty out in the community and uh, for the sake of the gospel and there was one day when he uh, ran into this guy, and this guy asked Bobby for, for gas money. Bobby strikes up a conversation with him. Doesn't immediately give him gas money, but strikes up a conversation, and they're talking. And somehow Bobby, this guy gets in Bobby's car, and Bobby's giving him a ride, takes him back to his house. Bobby talks himself into this guy's house. I don't know how he did. But he's in this house, and he's looking around, and he realizes that, all right, there are three or four kids here, and there is no food in this entire house. So he asks neighbors and people around what's going on. The neighbors tell him that these kids, three or four of them, have been coming door to door begging for food because there's no food in their house. So Bobby looks at this man who asked him for gas money and said, you have a job. You said you needed gas money to get to work. Where did the money go? Why aren't your kids, why don't they have any food? And this man confessed that he'd spent all of his paycheck on drugs. And to that, Bobby responded saying, I'm not going to give you gas money because I'm not going to subsidize your drugs, but I am going to do something. I'm going to call DHS so that these kids can get placed and be in a safe house and be fed And I'm also going to get you into rehab so that you can work towards sobriety and properly care for your children. And by God's grace, that's what happened. Gas money would not have fixed this man's problem. Silver and gold wouldn't have fixed this beggar's problem. There's always a deeper issue that we should aim at. Now, The truth is that it's much easier to hand someone a $5 bill and walk away. It's much harder and more time-consuming to stop and ask questions and find out the deeper issue and what's going on and how we can help. And all of us have names in our mind, people that we can think of who are hurting in various ways and are needy in various ways. God in his providence has placed them close to you and you bump into them and see them or speak to them on a daily basis. What should our response as Christians be? First, we look at them. We don't ignore them. We acknowledge their humanity and treat them like an actual human being, not a bump on the sidewalk. The second thing is to not just respond to this presenting problem, but get to know them. Have conversations with them. Ask good questions. Identify the underlying problem, that root problem, and help in any way you can. And by the way, if the need rises above your ability as an individual, please bring it to the church. Bring it to me. Bring it to the session. Let us as a church body Join in helping you. I would be excited to get that phone call. But please don't call me and say, hey, John, I've I've thought of 10 names of people that you and the church need to take care of. No, no, no. 
you are going to help them. God has placed you near them, and we will help you love on this person. God has and will place folks in your lives. Get to know them and help them so that Jesus Christ might look glorious. Last point is the result of this miraculous encounter. The lame man who was now healed stood up and began to walk and he enters the temple walking and leaping and praising God and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So the result here is that this man came to believe. He came to believe in the name of Jesus. We see him joyously entering the temple with Peter and John to pray. This is the first time he's ever been allowed to enter the temple. And now finally he can walk through the gate and join the others in corporate prayer. We're told twice in these two verses the man was praising God. And we're left with the impression that this man's legs were not the only thing healed. His heart was healed. His relationship with God Almighty healed. And that's what this response shows us. But he was not the only one that day. Because this miracle served to gather a crowd because people know this man and they recognize him and see him walking and they're shocked and astounded. And they begin to gather. And Peter has the opportunity to preach another sermon. A sermon that will begin in verse 11. All of those people knew this man and now they see him walking and leaping and praising God. And they know this is not some hoax. This is not something that has been set up. Something miraculous had happened. And it opened a door for Peter and John to share what was really amazing. That the Son of God became man lived a perfect life and died on the cross to atone for the sins of men, women, boys, and girls. And that a simple trust in him and his work and resting in it alone is all that is required for peace with God. That's the opportunity this miracle creates. I want to end with a short story. Thomas Aquinas was a great theologian from church history. He was in the 13th century. And he had the opportunity to visit Rome and an opportunity to meet the Pope, Pope Innocent II. And Aquinas was amazed by the wealth and the beauty and the art and architecture of the Vatican. And this is even prior to the building of St. Peter's Basilica. It was still incredibly luxurious and Beautiful, And the Pope reacted to, well, I guess he, Aquinas' face was just shocked by the splendor of the church. And the Pope noticed that. And out of a sense of pride, the Pope said to this great theologian, Thomas, no longer do we say, silver and gold have we none. And in response, Aquinas looked at the Pope and said, Maybe that is why we can no longer say, rise up and walk. 
the application to this story is not pointing to physical healings in the church. We, as well as Aquinas, believe that my ability as a minister to touch someone and heal them, that was limited to the apostolic age. The, the point here is that wealth or the pursuit of it can turn us inward. It can turn us as a church inward and make us inwardly focused. That's something we see in that little story. That we are those focused inward on ourselves and we are not looking outward to the needs of others. May we be people who are faithful to use the gifts and resources God has given to us to bless and assist those the Lord puts in our lives. With the end result being, we have an opportunity for gospel conversations and that our God looks glorious. Let's pray. Father, we need strength and conviction from your Holy Spirit. We need conviction to know that you would have us to do and know how we have not done it in the past and how we have been inwardly focused on ourselves and our own lives and what we have going on and how we have ignored the needs of our neighbor, how we have ignored your commands and the promptings your Spirit has given us. Father, bring that conviction. Father, give us strength. Give us a love for not only you, but for humanity. A love for neighbor. A love for those who are hurting and needy. Father, would we take time to get to know those people that you place in our lives? Would we get to know them and figure out how we can help? Would we run to the church for help? Father, would you make us as a body, as the local church, a great resource to the community? Father, would we not be turned inward? Would we seek opportunities for gospel conversations? And may our ultimate goal be the chief end for which we were made, to glorify you and enjoy you forever. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're about to partake of the Lord's Supper together.